Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, The Economist's Buttonwood columnist. And this is Money Talks. In today's program, is a peace deal possible in the Bitcoin civil war? This system was created to be leaderless. Now there's a fight over who actually gets to determine or or influence the evolution of the system. And why a fringe industry is booming in South Korea. There are stories of people who have even been fired from their jobs because of hair loss issues. But first, on Monday, the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, released the updated World Economic Outlook. And many people swiftly paid attention to their predictions. The recovery in global growth that we projected in April is on a firmer footing. There is now no question mark over the world economy's gain in momentum. As in our April forecast, the World Economic Outlook update projects 3.5% growth in global output for this year and 3.6% for next year. Those aggregate numbers are unchanged. However, the distribution of this growth around the world has changed. Now, I'm joined in the studio by Britain's economics correspondent, Callum Williams, to discuss what it means. Callum, what were your main impressions of the IMF forecasts? Well, the most interesting parts, uh, as I think we'll talk about, are the downgrades to both the UK and the US. The UK in particular is interesting because the IMF has kind of blown hot and cold about the immediate impact of, of Brexit on the UK economy. And relative to the rest of Europe, how does the UK look like it's growing? Roughly the same, I suppose. I mean, it's growing you know, faster than countries such as Italy and France, but slower than countries such as Germany. The way the IMF has phrased its assessment of the UK is quite interesting. I think the, the word it used to describe the UK was tepid, whereas it used words like robust and strong and so on to describe the Eurozone. The difference between the two is pretty small. So you just need to be sort of a bit careful about how you interpret it. And perhaps the biggest disappointment for the world is that the US economic forecasts are being revised down because earlier this year there were a lot of hopes of faster US economic growth in 2017. Yes, and that of course led to the massive stock market boom that kind of seems to have come to a bit of an end. I mean, I think with both Brexit and Trump, forecasting is even more difficult now than it's ever been because you just don't know what's going to happen with Trump, even how long he's going to last as president and so on and so on and so on. And with Brexit, we don't even know whether there'll be a transitional deal, how long that will last. It's very hard to predict how businesses in particular are going to respond to to Brexit. So it's it's really very up in the air, which, which it precisely explains why the forecasts have been so volatile. And the hopes for Trump were that he would pass a big tax cut and then an infrastructure plan. Mm. And really, six months in, we're no closer to seeing any of the details of that. Yes. And as I think you've said, it's taken efficient markets six to nine months to realise this. And infrastructure spending in particular has now been pushed a long way down the agenda. That was the one thing that we thought could actually be quite a good thing for America because, you know, you travel to an airport or to uh, on, a, on a road or a train in America and often it's pretty bad, but it seems to have fallen off. 
the agenda. So the big test for the UK will be coming out on the 26th of July. Yes, that's right. So GDP figures. The big question at the moment really is how much inflation is going to cause the economy to slow. So the pound depreciated quite a lot, as everyone knows, after the Brexit vote. And that's meant that kind of bringing stuff into the UK has got more expensive. So inflation has gone up from basically nothing not so long ago to sort of 3%. And this means that people's wages in, in real terms are falling. And the problem is that the UK is very, very dependent on consumer spending, much more so than it is on exporting stuff or uh, investing in stuff. So what that has meant is that inflation is kind of correlated quite closely with overall GDP growth. Now, the first quarter was very poor, as I said. I mean, it wasn't negative, but it was much slower than it had been. So the question now is whether there's been some kind of rebound. The hope, particularly from the Brexit camp, is that the weak pound is going to have led to exports booming. That was the great hope of Brexit. And actually, some Brexit supporting economists say that Brexit is a good thing precisely because it leads to a weaker pound. I think that probably tends to be overestimated slightly for for a number of reasons. But it is quite possible that we're going to see manufacturers reporting good export sales and that kind of thing. So we we may actually see quite decent figures tomorrow. Why UK growth surprised on the upside in the second half Mm. of last year was that consumers did keep spending, right? And the evidence seems to be that they cut their savings ratio to keep spending. So the question is, going forward, will they keep doing that? Or will the squeeze on real wages mean that consumption is affected and re- retail sales have been pretty mixed in their outlook. Absolutely. Recently, haven't they? Consumer credit now is like a really serious problem. It's been increasing at a really, really fast pace. People are borrowing loads on credit cards at the moment. And so the banks have taken heed of those warnings a little bit and have kind of cut back on their lending a little bit, but it is still growing kind of quite rapidly. And so the risk is that suddenly we're left with a situation where people have borrowed way too much on their credit card, have to pay it all down, and then things really start to start to come off. Consumers were the big issue of the second half of last year. Sounds like they kept spending and that's what kept the UK economy going. But the issue going forward is, have they spent too much and borrowed too much? Exactly. So that's why the UK, despite all the predictions of Armageddon post-referendum, continue to do okay. The risk now is that consumers have borrowed too much. They'll stop borrowing, stop spending to pay it all down and then things will start to really slow down. Callum Williams, thank you very much. Thanks, Phil. How much attention do you think should be paid to the IMS forecasts? Should UK and US citizens be worried? Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Now, a divide threatening to disrupt the future of cryptocurrencies may have been averted. Over the last two years, a fundamental disagreement about the future of Bitcoin has looked likely to erupt into a civil war. But last week, a large majority of the industry signalled their support for compromise. Joining me to discuss this is The Economist technology editor, Ludwig Siegler. Ludwig, what's been going on in Bitcoin? You mentioned uh, civil war. One has to be careful with that expression. But, I mean, there has been a lot of infighting in this Bitcoin community. And the question is mainly about how to scale Bitcoin. So Bitcoin started as an open source libertarian project by this elusive guy, Satoshi Nakamoto. Nobody knows who he is. And he set certain limits to the system, and the limits have now been reached. So the community has to decide how to uh, increase the capacity of the system. The problem is increasing the capacity of the system to do transactions quickly, yes? Yes. So the creator, Satoshi Nakamoto, he set certain limits to the system. 
But those numbers meant that the system can only process seven transactions per second, which is not a lot compared to, let's say, Visa or MasterCard, which can do several thousands per seconds if they need to. And it's actually the technical solution is pretty straightforward. You just have to tweak certain parameters to increase the capacity. But still, there's a big fight, mainly because this simple question has triggered conflict over what Bitcoin is supposed to be. Should it be more like gold or cash? Also, who, who has a say? I mean, this system was created to be leaderless. Now there's a fight over who actually gets to determine or, or influence the evolution of the system. And what has made the Bitcoin community get their act together and propose a solution? For two years, there were these fights. People were kind of trying all kinds of shenanigans to get the upper hand, besmirching reputations, uh, hacking miners, uh, and that could have gone forever. But what has happened is because Bitcoin, because of that conflict, stalled, didn't evolve, didn't innovate, other cryptocurrencies have grown up and, and, and become successful, notably Ethereum. So there's more pressure from outside on Bitcoin to get its act together. Also, as I said, the system has reached its limits, so something has to be done. It now takes, I mean, several minutes, even hours to get a transaction confirmed. A group of Bitcoin aficionados, they started an election basically saying, so we vote on this, there will be a change, and if you miners, which were the main holdouts, if you miners don't agree, you'll get bumped off the network. And so those pressures have led to this compromise. So what has been agreed on July 21st is to pack transactions more densely into one block. And I think I have to explain what a block is. Before transactions on Bitcoin are confirmed, they're kind of assembled and encrypted and all that into a block and then attached to the blockchain. The blockchain being the database which contains kind of the payment history of all blockchains in circulation. And so the block has a certain size and that's Satoshi Nakamoto limited the size of that block. So the agreement now is a two-step agreement. First, we kind of pack transactions more densely into that block. And the second step, which is supposed to occur in, in later this year, is to increase the size of the block. But it is not clear yet whether that's actually going to happen. In three months, people are already saying, oh, it's going to take a year and even more. And that risk there is, if this drags on, then really there could be a real civil war. Most listeners probably haven't used Bitcoin or Ethereum to buy anything. Do you think these reforms make the moment when these cryptocurrencies are actually used for everyday transactions uh, come closer? Yeah, a bit closer. But I mean, I, I don't see Bitcoin being used like cash. But it helps Bitcoin to innovate. It helps Bitcoin to remain relevant. And that's a good thing. Ludwig Siegler, thank you very much. Thank you, Phil. And finally today, we're turning our attention to South Korea, where one industry has a captive audience. It may be the policies of Kim Jong-un, but one in four South Koreans are losing their hair. And products to combat this have become a multi-trillion one market. On the line now from Seoul is Stephanie Studer, who's been looking into this growing market for The Economist. Stephanie, hi. Hi, Phil. Why has this market been growing in recent years? Well, there are a few reasons for it. One of them is that more and more South Koreans are entering the workforce because women now are staying in it for longer And so they are also now experiencing the stresses of extremely long working hours, which is common in South Korea. So they're sort of bulking out the market. The young as well have immense pressure um, in the education system in South Korea. And of course, South Koreans are living for longer. And these are wigs that usually you need to renew every year or so. And so the longer they live, the better that is for the wig industry. Is there social stigma about hair loss in 
Western countries, quite a lot of men in particular, seem more than happy to go about with shaved heads. There is stigma here. It has been changing, partly thanks to a lot of celebrity marketing that's been happening beginning in um, the late 1990s to do with wearing wigs. But certainly in terms of hair loss, a lot of men here will dye their hair black in middle age. And it's also associated with competitiveness even. So there are stories of people who have even been fired from their jobs because of hair loss issues. And do you think this is just a fashion or this is a long term business where people will still be buying these wigs in 10, 20 years time? Well, I imagine it will be a long-term business because it's not only due to hair loss that people are buying them, but now fashion wigs are also increasingly popular. And that's really being driven by Korean pop and dramas and Korean stars. And that's all known as, as Hallyu or the Korean wave. And that's been especially popular in Asia. But here in Korea as well, there are a lot of young people who want to imitate the hairstyles of their favourite Korean actors and actresses. And so that's also helping to change the sort of stigma towards wigs. Is it a very expensive thing to buy? Yes. The starting price of a custom-made wig at one of the biggest wig makers, which is um, called Haimo in South Korea, is about $1,000. So, the second combing of the wig industry. Stephanie, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.